0: He called me up and said that I'm finally going to do a rock movie, a music movie. I said, no, you're not. We, we'd we always talked about how we hated music films because they were never correct. And I, I don't know, having actors and directors who had not really had the experience that we had. So I said, no, you're not. He said, yes, I am. He said, were well, you... We don't like rock movies. And he said, I know, but I'm going to do it the right way.
1: We spent a lot of time together. We rooted for each other as actors. He created rock school. We came, we hung out. We watched the guys really kind of learn how to become a band, this unit. And we became the sort of, the band-aids were, you know, trailing off of their unit a little bit. But it became our life for six months. And we really went there with each other.
2: I'm Jim Miller, and welcome back to Origins Chapter 6, Almost Famous Turns 20. This is Episode 3. As we learned in Episode 2, Cameron Crowe began his career as a journalist, so it's hardly a surprise that authenticity would be a priority for him, not only in his documentaries, but also in films that told fictional stories, albeit fiction that often had rings of truth. That involves creating a heightened sense of verisimilitude, which, in the case of Almost Famous, meant taking actors like Billy Crudup Jason Lee and others, and making sure they all but reeked of the real deal as rock musicians. Now, you'll experience what pre-production was like for Cameron the director and his vibrant cast as they looked ahead to shooting Almost Famous. More so than on many films, the cast of this movie had to do their homework, which meant attending, in a sense, a newly formed college of rock led by Deans Nancy Wilson from Hart and Peter Frampton. It was all designed to make sure Almost Famous was as real as it could be.
1: He didn't have to ask, you know, he didn't have to beg or plead, because I was already on the team, you know, I was already really invested in the whole project. And, you know, from the score music to the songwriting to the details and the authentic sort of dialogue. And so it was just a natural for me to be involved in the rock school, which we got together with the actors who were in the band and rehearsed with them to the tracks that we were recording for the movie. And Peter Frampton was also involved in that. He was around, you know, he played on some of the songs for me too.
2: Jason and Billy talked to me about being at rock school with Nancy Wilson and Peter Frampton for six weeks.
3: I went to some of those too, even though I had no reason to be there. Oh, what was that like? Nancy Wilson has one of the coolest voices Speaking voices, not only singing voice, speaking voices that you've ever heard in your life. I go like, uh, "Hi Nancy," she's like, "Hi, hi Jimmy," or something.
2: I like, "You can warm your hands on the sound of her voice."
3: Macro, that is your voice. I mean, oh my gosh, no wonder. Look, I'm a comedian, and she's a sexy rock star. She's amazing. I love. And then this guy came with. Me, he's like, "Oh yeah," and you can watch this if you want to do blah blah. blah. He's like, "Oh hi, I'm Pizza. And I go, "Hey, how you doing?" Because he has short hair, and I was like blonde or gray and he goes uh well, if you want to and I go I can play the guitar or do something he's like yeah well when I did it on this and you started talking about I go oh my god <laughs> are you Peter Frampton like <laughs> what it was almost like the most bizarre thing in the world you're like I can't play it now I can't play the guitar <laughs> if, if you were like Doug Simpson or something I never met before sure I can play the guitar in front of you Peter Frampton please take this guitar back
2: I cannot play guitar in front of you you're a legend Peter Frampton was heavily involved in production and helped actors prepare for their rock and roll scenes as well as ensuring the authenticity of the set design. Many of the actors spent months preparing for their roles. Cameron Crowe and his wife Nancy Wilson of the band Heart contributed and co-wrote three of the five Stillwater songs that appear in the movie. These songs include Fever Dog, Love Thing, and Love Comes and Goes. Another song that the duo wrote, Chance Upon You, was only included in the director's cut of the film. He said, will you help
0: me? And I said, yes, I'd love, what do you need? And he said, well, basically, I need your advice sort of in an advisory capacity to make sure things are right, time-sensitive and all that. So my job was to work with uh, property and set design and people like that. When they had questions, you know, uh, where would the gear be, what sort of gear, what microphone, what the, you know, all that sort of stuff, so... We gave me the title of authenticity advisor. Even the way you put the strap on the guitar in those days was different than we have strap locks now. We never had those. So, yeah, there were lots of things that you don't think about until you think about it, you know, and this has got to be correct. So, yeah, it was very enjoyable for me. Like, that, I remember there was one question that the set designers came to me and said, so would there be a crash barrier in front of the stage? for this gig. This is the one where they're opening for Black Sabbath, Stillwater opening for Black Sabbath. I said, yes, there would be a Crash Barrier. And they said, would it be a wooden one or a metal one? And I had to call my old stage manager (laughs) from that time period to ask that question.
4: When Brad Pitt heard that Peter Frampton would help him with guitar, that was the closest he ever got to being an Almost Famous. He was so happy about that. And then we lost Brad and Peter said, well, I'm gonna stay in and help whoever you have.
0: I was the guitar teacher for, for Billy, who I saw recently, wonderful. He came to my Madison Square Garden show. It was wonderful to see him, what a wonderful actor. And um, he had only played guitar,
5: I think he'd had two weeks of lessons. Learning to play an instrument is brutal. This is why you start at a young age, because you don't quite yet know how hard things are back then. So it does seem hard, but you don't know how hard it is because you haven't had the chance to have things be easy yet. So everything seems hard when you're learning the piano. I learned piano at fourth grade and, you know, you do scales. Scales suck. My mom's like, have you done your scales today? No, I don't want to do my freaking scales, mom. Well, you you don't want to do any of it. And then maybe over two years, you can play a little concerto or something. And maybe over six years, you can start to develop your own material or whatever. The idea of, as a 30-year-old, learning to play the guitar that would mimic somebody who really knows how to play guitar and is inventive at playing the guitar is ridiculous. And so the way that I remember band rehearsals is like euphoria, despair, euphoria, despair, euphoria, despair, because you've got Nancy Wilson and Peter Frampton, you know, sitting there watching you, coaching you, and then occasionally getting up and showing you. So you get to sit down and watch. I was breaking strings left and right. I've since learned to play the guitar myself and I play at home just for like self-soothing and stuff like that. You know, I had this amazing fantasy before I went to go see Frampton in his show at the garden that he was going to, you know, look out at me at the audience and say, oh, very crude up. Come on off. We've been waiting for it. You know, and of course, I mean, I can barely play chords, but it's so much better than what I was then because there's so much effort that goes into trying to like get the rhythm of the music that you're hearing over through your right hand you forget your fingering with your left hand you don't know what to do with chords you're trying to play interact with the other musicians it's a torture chamber
0: i couldn't be there the entire period because i was going to tour in the summer and stuff like that so in between dates i would come back to la but when i would go away i would have billy video me playing the solo to the music And then he would look in a mirror and work out what it was (laughs) so that he could keep practicing.
1: We watched all kinds of videos of, you know, The Who and Zeppelin and here's the body language of a rock band. And Billy Crudup was just an incredible actor who really, I think, captured, for someone who hadn't really played guitar before, he really captured it. He had the slouch It's like I always told him, you don't want to have good posture on a rock stage. You really need to slouch.
5: (laughs) That we were going to be filmed was excruciating. So for me, I'm sure they have some footage of it. I wasn't a hat full of joy. I was like mostly head down grinding it out, which is the way I remember a lot of the shoot, actually.
2: Frampton said that he was keenly aware of your growth during the five or six weeks of camp. Were you... Or was it just every day was just the whole grind that
5: you were was just trying just to make grind. it through? It was just the grind.
0: We sit down and start, and I need to show him how to play the solos <laughs> that Mike McCready has done on some from Pearl Jam, dear friend, and also on the two that I did a solo.
5: He didn't know how to play it as a teacher. And I'd be like, hey, Peter, Peter, that's too fast. I can't see, like, I can't process what you're doing with your right hand and your left hand at the same time. Cameron said to me,
0: what do you think would make Billy look like he really knew what he was doing? And I said, when he's in the middle of a solo and his hands are playing on his left hand, it's the right notes on the fretboard, and he puts his head back and just closes his eyes.
5: So I ended up videotaping him and slowing it down in slow-mo, watching it back in slow-mo, so I could get the precise fingering for every uh, note of it. And that's what we ended up using on that one shot. And that's probably the one that Peter was referring to when I threw my head back or whatever it was. That was a big rock and roll move. That's All you need is one of those to get the vast amount of people convinced that that's you. And I'm telling you, it was just nothing but grinding to get there.
0: It was a big yes moment when Billy just, he knocked it out of the park as far as being authentic. And uh, he does that with every character he plays. If he's a long-distance runner, he becomes a long-distance runner. If he's a guitar player, he becomes a guitar player. And um, I have the utmost respect for Billy.
4: I just have to give a lot to Billy up too, because, you know, we were up against it. And... um It's hard to find somebody who can play guitar and give you the acting moments that he gives you.
1: He's a fast study, and you could see during the dailies that he wasn't a very experienced player, but cutting around him worked really well. And, you know, you don't really want to look at somebody's fingers for that long anyway.
2: Last night, I rewatched Hart's... Introduction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And of course, thank God you played crazy on you. And, you know, when you start that exquisite opening of yours, which I love how you always change it and you never know when we're going to get to the big leg kick and the (laughs) words. But, uh, but, um, (laughs) the big kick. I mean, that to me is like being a rock star. What is the essence of that? That command of the stage. And, just knowing that everybody's looking at you and yet feeling so powerful, were you able to talk to him about things outside of how to play a guitar, oh, yeah. in terms of what it means to be a rock star?
1: totally. yes, what it feels like to feel larger than life on a stage and with again like that super electric energy and the feeling of being you know up there with a big, loud rock guitar, like. You know, if you're just there without a guitar on, you're way more vulnerable than if you're holding a guitar and it's really a loud guitar and you've got people, you know, cheering you on. So that's quite an experience that's hard to describe, but it's really high energy and it's larger than life. So I think he captured that beautifully too, and all of those guys did in the band.
0: They were watching a lot of videos of early Zeppelin And Billy and Jason kind of just morphed into rock stars, you know, which was perfect. But, you know, always asking every now and again, is this okay? Is that okay? So I was always there, or Cameron was always there, because he was an expert anyway, because he'd been on the, by the time he made Almost Famous, he's almost done as many tours as I have. So he knows what he wants, he knows what it's supposed to be like, and and that's why he was the perfect person, because he traveled with all these
2: bands. And learn what it's all about and how real it is. We see an almost famous, of course, Penny and the rest of the Band Aids. I'm curious, you know, when you were touring back then and through the years, is there like a male version of Band Aids that follow groups like Heart around, and so you always know that there's these up the ramp, so to speak. <laughs> there's all these guys waiting for you and who love you and adore you.
1: No, <laughs> there was that seems there was never unfair. there's never an equivalent. That I've ever seen of male band aids, groupies around a, you know any heart shows, ever. And it's interesting because the girls were ever present, always there, always willing to kind of, you know, get their thrills with some guy that's about to leave town, <laughs> and you know hopefully next time he comes through. But for the guy fans, they're more likely to be super shy you know, kind of really nervous, and with shaking hands they'll give you like a love letter or a little present or a scarf. It's like, I wanted you to have something, you know, and I really love what you do, and I really appreciate what you and it's just, it's kind of the opposite with guy fans that are, I think they're just more like, they're shy and they're romantic instead of really kind of hardcore, <laughs> like the girls.
2: Life should be a buffet. You guys should have, have those guys at top of the ramp just in case you're ever in that mood. It seems awfully sexist. There's something wrong with that.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I think we were always so hell-bent on the career of it all that we didn't really stop long. Because you're a moving target. You're not staying anywhere. You're going. So that's, you know, of course why relationships inside the band itself which was a terrible idea but that was kind of the way it could work like Fleetwood Mac you know you're together you're the only people you're always with so you know that's a mistake of course.
2: (laughs) Yes the romantic game of musical chairs. Musical chairs. (laughs) So was that a huge change in your life when you and Cameron got together and got married because you had that kind of outside force now in your life. I mean, I don't know whether it was grounding or whatever, but that's totally different, I guess, than being so committed on the road and not being able to have that kind of relationship.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it was grounding to be together with someone who's creativist and such a hardworking, creative type person which I felt really akin to him that way. So it was all about getting the work done. And, you know, I'd be on the road and I would get cassette, VHS cassette tapes of the dailies. And I would take extensive notes in the big notebook about, you know, act two, scene three, you know. And um, I would hand in my huge notebook of notes for all the dailies for them to hopefully cut to. So I was projecting with Cameron, even if I wasn't there. <laughs> Jason Lee
2: had made a few films prior to Almost Famous, but the production on this film was distinctly different from his previous work. You had five or six weeks with them?
6: Yeah, in somewhere in Santa Monica in a warehouse space, we had you know amplifiers and we had all the period gear and stuff, and, and we rehearsed a lot play back with the songs. Peter was there, Nancy was there, Cameron was there. And after getting everything sort of down, the ladies who played the band-aids, they came along with a few other people to watch us perform towards the end of our rehearsal stretch. And that was really exciting. I mean, the whole of it was amazing. All the people, we were all like one big band of friends. So on the rehearsals, it was an opportunity for us to start to feel like a band. And then when the band-aids came in, it was an opportunity for us to perform for other people. What was that like? I felt a little bit nervous, but I felt that moment of, I can either sort of hold back a little bit or just outright perform. And I just kind of gave it my everything and... Everybody just clicked and everybody fell into it. And it really, at that moment, felt like we were about to start making a pretty special
2: movie. What was your attitude about your voice?
6: Well, I tried to sing, but I couldn't sing. And I think it was pretty clear that I wasn't going to be the man for the job. So they found somebody to be, my, to be my voice. And so I just, I sang along. I didn't just lip sync. I sang along just to make it
2: feel right. certainly looked right. (laughs) What was the point when you really started to feel like this is what it feels like to be a rock star?
6: On set with the hairpiece and the wardrobe and the camaraderie and the cast and Cameron's infectious energy and passion and enthusiasm, pretty much from day one, we were just locked in, Mark Koslick and just the whole gang and just playing guitar in between takes and setups and actually being friends and hanging out and telling jokes and goofing off and i mean it really was that special thing that you look for as an actor when you're working on something and it feels like family it's such a cliche but it's so true we had that special experience on this film
2: what about jason in terms of his learning curve i spoke to him and he he loved rock school and being with you (laughs) and peter but what were the challenges for him
1: Well, I think for Jason, he's already a guitar player. So he had that musicianship. You know, being a player already, probably already had big dreams of being on a big rock stage, you know. And so in this movie, he got to do that. He got to be a rock star. And I think he was just a real natural. I don't think he didn't have far to come. It was built in with Jason Lee. The fact
7: that he could create, and of course he knew deeply, you know, almost molecularly, he understood what had to happen in those live concert scenes. And they are exciting, and they are... I got to sit in on a couple studio sessions when the actors playing the band were rehearsing, and it was like sitting in on a real band session. It was very exciting.
2: Your character is complex because on the one hand it feels like he wants it more than Billy's character and wants success and wants the recognition. But on the other hand, there are so many sardonic lines and so many wry moments that you have that you can tell that you're not taking yourself too seriously as well, right?
6: Yeah, that's probably true. Or it's just a guy's, you know, it's a way of sort of hiding. I mean, Jeff's more insecure, whereas uh, Russell's you know, he's more sort of existential about it. I think he's just more neutral. Jeff's more worked up and high strung and he wants it to be a certain way and all of these things. And he's just ultimately more insecure. But at the same time, he does have a good argument that it was his band.
5: So for Russell, I think he kind of grew up feeling like he was really good at guitar and he really liked playing guitar. And then all of a sudden, there's 30,000 people in front of him how do you make that transition? And one of the ways you do it is clam up. So you don't tell anybody anything so that they allow to believe that you have this kind of mystical quality. And I think you see that in a lot of uh, musicians. And for myself, actors, I didn't say shit for the first 20 years I was working, just because you don't want to undermine anybody's ability to imagine that there is some sort of magical process going on it's much more fun if it's elusive they believe you're the character they think that you're just kind of channeling somebody that that works better for the form
2: well in the case of russell though i think that's a real huge judo move that you pulled off because we know that russell isn't really buying into the capital r rock and roll mystique and he doesn't even covet that right in fact he wants to make fun of it and yet, his moral ambiguity about living that life and his whole relationship with Penny and everything else, the Faustian bargain
5: he's made. Or to avoid expressing it. I think Russell's main conflict there is he wants to give this kid a wink and a nod about something that the kid doesn't know anything about yet. So, most adults, when you go, hey, let's just keep this on the DL they're not going to ask questions till later. They, don't, they know that something is up. They're not going to be too curious about, but you tell that to a 15 year old, particularly one who wants to write about what's going on. That's just going to send them into a tailspin. So part of Russell's job was to try to help curate that experience for him. And that's where I think you find some of the charm between them is that he likes the kid. He wants to help the kid. He also knows that he's got a job to do for the band And then he starts to feel like he's got a job to do for the kid.
2: But there is all these conflicts, right? There's a conflict with William Miller because he wants to be protective. He wants to even, at times, it seems like he wants to play a mentor, but then it's the enemy. There's the same thing with Penny Lane in the sense that he loves her, but at the same time, he can't get too close to her. There's the same thing with Jason Lee's character. I mean, in the sense that, you know, you're my bandmate, but my God, you're flying way too close to the sun for me, man. Like, so everything that Russell sees in that movie there's no terra firma for him. It's all conflicted. What was that like to wrestle to the ground? Because you're dealing with, I mean, I look at the script and I think about some of the stage directions, but then it's easy to see it on the page, but how it manifests itself on your face and how you act to it. And that's kind of deep, isn't it?
5: Well, there, it makes me remember so many different things about the making of it. One of the things that you accept, I think, when you're a musician or if you're an artist or an actor, you know, is the carny life. And the carny life has a different kind of code, which is that we all accept that we're going to be dislocated and uprooted for certain periods of our year, every year. That's the way that we feel our most powerful sense of self. It's our artistic self happens to happen in this little sphere. And whatever you need to do in that sphere to make yourself comfortable so that you can produce the kind of creativity that the audience wants is okay in the Carney life. There's a sort of different code. And the people who are outside of that, your friends back in the hometown, your family, whoever it is, they're with you because they can accept that portion of it.
6: What do you do when you've started something and then you bring somebody else in and they start getting more of the attention? I think even the most secure of us would be a little bit irked by that. But I think because he's a little more maybe deeply insecure or unsure about himself in some way or another, it irks him a little bit more than it probably ought to. But I think ultimately, as you said, you see in him there is an ability to just kind of let things go and and ultimately try to look at the bigger picture. Billy was really something to watch, because like I had said about me sort of just feeling like I had fallen into it, Billy was definitely more of the kind of actor that really, he was a trained actor, and he was very serious about it, and, and I was a bit intimidated by that. He was really, really good, and really locked into this kind of mode of acting, this method of acting, and I watched that a lot.
2: How did you two find your way together? It was easy. Because of the writing
6: Yeah, that was easy. Uh, We definitely hung out on set, but Billy would have his moments of kind of checking out and getting focused on the work as he should have done. But he was right there goofing off with everybody else. But he had an approach. He had a focus. He had a way of doing it. And it was inspiring to watch that.
2: I think he was also besieged almost by the guitar playing. It was like an anchor for him.
6: He played constantly every day, all day on set. And I heard that after the movie wrapped, he went on to continue playing guitar.
2: He's still playing now.
6: I bet he's good. That's ironic because I already played so I could play all the songs that I had to play. But I bet Billy's a better guitar player than me now because I don't practice as much as I should. I think Peter and Nancy were more sort of dialed in with Billy and the guitar stuff. Cameron and I had a thing going about the feel of it.
4: You know, the feel, the feel, the feel. Nancy and I were really in a groove musically and our shorthand was incredible. Two words leave your mouth of a Simon and Garfunkel song and she's not only finished the song that you're trying to reference, she's playing her version of that. It's hard to come by, baby.
1: (laughs) When we were working on Almost Famous, we were feeling really good about the collaborative work that we were doing together and we sort of always defined ourselves around the work and that was a great result and a great reward to have for the work.
2: What about working with Nancy and some of the songs that you created for Stillwater?
0: Well, Nancy wrote four of them and I wrote with other people besides Nancy. I wrote the two, Hour of Need and You Had to Be There. Cameron had called me up this is after the first conversation, so I'm already on board. And he says, I really need a song. Nancy's written for, I believe it was for, and um, I need another one. So I said, what do you want? And he gave me all these titles from the albums that Stillwater had fictitiously had already. And one of them was Hour of Thee. So I came back to Nashville, and Gordon Kennedy and I wrote Hour of Need, did a quick demo of it. I flew back out to LA to play it for him. He loved it, uh, thank goodness. And then I said, pardon me for, you know, overstepping my bounds here, but I said, you know what you don't have? You don't have an an up-tempo encore song. So that's when Went back and wrote another one, another title, You Had to Be There. And basically, I worked with Gordon Kennedy and Wayne Kirkpatrick on You Had to Be There, which was the second song that we wrote for Almost Famous.
2: And you also put him in
4: the movie. We put him in the movie. I love his presence in the movie. I wish there was more of it. Yeah, I mean, he's like a little... Not so little. He's a, an X factor in the movie, for sure. You can feel him kind of behind the scenes, the way he helped the band. There's a lot of Peter in Almost Famous.
2: Your last role in the movie was actually in front of the camera, acting. And I guess it was, you were the road manager for Humble Pie. Is that right?
0: Yes. Well, uh, Cameron said to me when he first gave me the script, he said, read through it and there's a character in there that I think would be good for you. I said, you're kidding me. He said, yeah. So anyway, I read through it and I go well, this part would be good for me. I liked it. And I picked one of the lead roles, of course. And he said, no, no, no. That's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> so so he said, read it again. So I read in there, you know, as Reg, um, Humble Pie's Road Manager, and I realized that that was the part and loved it. What a great twist, lovely comedy there of me being Humble Pie's Road Manager.
2: Well, you do get to be in that poker game, which results in uh, Penny getting purchased for 50 bucks in that case of Heineken, right?
0: That's right. Yes, that's right. And um, I remember saying to Billy, I said, okay, I've helped you. Help me. How am I doing? (laughs) So he gave me a couple of pointers, which was great.
5: They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable.
0: They got listeners.
6: We got listeners. No way. Amazing.
0: Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
5: I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last.
1: One day, you'll be cool. Look under your bed.
4: It'll set you free.
2: When you were working with Patrick, he told me that you gave him a stack of albums, which begs the question, what was
4: that pile like? Do you remember any of the selections? It's mostly the albums that you see at the beginning of the movie, the stuff that his sister gives him. Those are actually my records.
8: He said, I want this stuff coming out of your pores. (laughs) He gave me a big box when I came back. I think it was the time when I read with Brad Pitt. He gave me a huge, basically, mix CD. He had made a bunch of mix CDs and then a bunch of just albums like The Allman Brothers, Simon Garfunkel, Led Zeppelin, lots of Joni Mitchell, tons of stuff. And um, basically, like, you know, I flew back with that box of music and started listening to it all. There was some of it that I was really into and really tracking, and then stuff that i didn't track yet that i wouldn't really appreciate for even years after we finished filming
4: patrick really ate it up i mean just in the most kind of soulful porous way he threw himself into it totally
2: so is it fair to say that by the time you started actually shooting you, you knew the script
8: oh yeah yeah i've always had a really uh good memory like I can retain a lot of information so when we sat down to do the table read I'd come from like live theater background at that point so when we sat down to do the table read I thought we were doing like a sort of round table performance of it so I'd memorized the script I knew my parts I knew all of Billy's parts I knew Kate's parts like I didn't actually open my script for the whole table read and I remember Billy was like mad. Billy used to also give me shit because he's like an old school, like trained theater actor. You know, he's like worked hard and done you know years of this stuff, and then I'm just some kid who just stumbles in and is the star of this movie. You know that kind of thing. So he was looking at me. He's like, "Why aren't you opening your script?" And I was like, cause I? I know my lines." And he's like, "You fucking fucker! Like, what? Come on, man! What are you doing? Like, you memorized the whole script? Yeah, right." I was like, "Yeah, I thought I had to." You know that kind of thing. <laughs> so I knew that, but in terms of what we needed to know to be in flow on the day that was the months of spending time with cameron and the acting coach belita belita moreno who spent hours she spent all day every day with me pretty much she was there for the whole cast and to help kind of power assist cameron but really i mean she was there to make sure i didn't fuck anything up (laughs) and she was amazing i still use a lot of the stuff she taught me now in my career now
2: According to Hollywood legend, the stars of the golden age classic Casablanca didn't know the ending of the movie when they began shooting it. The final script pages were reportedly blank. Almost Famous wasn't quite as mysterious about itself as that, but Zoe Deschanel, who played Anita, remembers being kept in the dark about many of the film's details.
1: A movie like Almost Famous has a huge level of secrecy around it. I find that great. But I sort of got information as it was handed to me. But I didn't have a ton of information beforehand, really.
2: Cameron sent me some footage of you and Francis rehearsing in a car <laughs> with the young William in the oh. back, Jonathan, and uh, you could just see how raw it was at the beginning. Do you remember the rehearsals and what it was like being on set with Cameron?
1: Yeah, it was the best. It was like <laughs> that kind of thing I could like just do like all day endlessly. If you said, like, my whole acting career would be like that, I'd be like, I'll work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's not all like that. But, yeah, it was absolutely delightful. So fun.
2: Of all the cast members, veteran actor Frances McDormand probably drew most from her experience to play her part. And she had the benefit of consulting with the character she played, Cameron Crowe's real-life mom, Alice. Though such in-person encounters did have diminishing marginal returns. You're meeting the real Alice. You're playing her in the movie. And yet, at the same time, Cameron doesn't want you to be totally derivative or a mirror. So how did you come to find that?
7: Well, I'm theatrically trained. You know, I do theater. It's a different methodology than people who have only done film. The script is my guide. That's the map. I'm curious, but I'm not a slave to, like I was saying, the reality, but only the truth of what the real person might be bringing to the character. So from my point of view, the script was where I went from. And then my own experience of being a mother of a five-year-old son and my struggles with that and my hopes for him. You know, the one thing that I think we parents are privileged to nurture a human being and given the privilege of watching them grow into an adult. And I think that was what was evident in the screenplay, is that relationship, that very, very unusually open relationship that the two of them had.
4: She really understood the kind of essential spirit of my mom. What's funny is my mom, such a control person you know she um i could tell like when we were leading up to her meeting francis that my mom knew that francis is a very powerful actor but she just so wanted all the details to be right. I'm the same way.
2: Did she feel that way about the script? Were you showing her pages? Or yeah, she... yeah,
4: yeah. My mom, very close relationship. I'd share all kinds of stuff. And would she
2: push back and say you're...
4: Well, she, what she would say, and this is so fun to talk about, what she would say is, don't make me a stereotypical mom. I was not a stereotypical mom. I took you to see Carnal Knowledge when you were 12 or 10 or whatever it was. And she didn't want to be, like, a footloose mom. Like, there's no rock in the house. It really was she just thought that the wrong people were trying to shove their hands in the pockets of adolescents, you know, to steal their money for, like, salacious stuff. Like, she had the teacher's point of view. Like, it's just not a good lesson, you know.
2: So, percentage-wise, for those of us who don't know your mother, how close is it?
4: i put it at 90%. Wow.
7: Well, I always, always felt supported by Alice. I never felt judged. There was nothing she could ever say to me that didn't make me only want to honor the gift that Cameron was giving her. But the way that I approach, because I played other characters based on real people, quote unquote. It's like when a screenplay is based on a novel or an article or an actual event. It's still a fictional narrative. It's no longer the reality. It's a truth but not a reality. And where it became true for me was in an improvisation we did that takes place in the early part of the film with the younger Michael, who was playing William. We were improvising an early scene where we were walking down the street and we had talked about what books we had in common. And we both had read To Kill a Mockingbird. And so we were having a conversation about Atticus Finch. And he said something about him being a single dad, and I said, yeah, but what about Calpurnia? You know, she was pretty amazing too. And Michael responded, he knew what I was talking about. And so for me, that exchange between Michael and myself was the truth of the exchange between Alice and Cameron, that there was a real intellectual curiosity about their mm-hmm. relationship, and that that led to her trusting him and understanding that he, even at 15, could make a decision for himself.
1: If you want to be Atticus Finch, oh, that makes me feel so
7: good. I
1: like him. Why? Well, he's honest. Yes. He he stands up for the right thing. Yes. And he's a good father. He is. is All by himself. Did what all by
7: himself? Raised his kids. He didn't raise them by himself. Excuse me, who was the woman that came to their house every day? Calpurnia.
2: Calpurnia. William goes into a world that his mother clearly didn't celebrate. She was a teacher, but he's not even around for his own graduation. In real life, you didn't go to college. But yet-
4: Easy, easy, that, easy with that. Come on. Oh, but <laughs> There's clear, still time. There's still but, time.
2: But it's clear that your mother or Elaine was a very big part of William. So when you watch the movie, you realize that- he's doing something for the majority of the movie that his mother disapproves of. And he's not reading Goethe. And yet at the same time, there's a bond and some shared sensibilities. It's just like an inner core that connects them so much, maybe that everything else on top of it, it's okay if it goes separately. I'm just wondering if you could just speak to The real attachment between William and Elaine in the movie and and how that survives despite the fact of all the circumstances of the movie
4: wow well I think the kind of inner story of Almost Famous is a lot about William and Elaine and there's a hurt in that family I think the kid wants to fix things and if he can make his mother happy or feel like he's achieved something to kind of help mend the family which is below the surface of almost famous that's really the other victory that he's going for that's
2: why he brings his sister home
4: that's why he brings his sister home and it's why he wants to teach his mother a teacher that he can do that and not become part of the teenage wasteland, that he actually can bring home a golden fleece to help that family. And that's what I see when I see Almost Famous.
2: So in a way, Elaine becomes a student.
4: Totally Elaine becomes a student. And that's the scene that didn't make it into the movie, which they try and teach Elaine about the greatness of Stairway to Heaven, which is really the greatness of Francis McDormand, who I believe went through two days of sitting there being filmed, listening to Stairway to Heaven, giving you every little kind of twitch and twinkle for that sequence.
2: Why did you decide to take the Stairway to Heaven thing out?
4: It was just too long, Jim. It was like, you know, the song is eight minutes long. And the joke is that she has to sit there for eight torturous minutes and hear it all while they're just like, you know, like playing air drums and everything around her, like they're having a party with Stairway to Heaven, and she's sitting there just like, you know, wall-eyed trying to get through it. But it is about teaching. It's a lot about a teacher. But it's like, you're very right on the money when you say it's about teaching Elaine, the great teacher, about life, family, and music because the original ending of the movie is she plays a song for the kids so he's able to teach her that along with goethe and edgar casey and all the other people she named checks you know there is a philosopher named neil young there's a philosopher named david bowie there's a philosopher named joni mitchell who has equal weight
2: coming up next on episode four it's all happening Origins celebrates the 20th anniversary of *Oma's Famous* by taking you onto the sets and locations from the beginning of filming all the way to the end of the shoot. It was a long one, and the stories and moments shared by Cameron and the cast—some never before revealed—will, I hope and believe, stay with you for a long time. In a way, it becomes a Cameron Crowe masterclass in filmmaking. For Origins, this is Jim Miller. Onward. This has been a production of Cadence 13, executive produced by me, Jim Miller, and my valued colleague, Chris Corcoran, who kicks ass running all content for Cadence. I do the writing and reporting for Arjuns, but the actual podcast is produced, edited, and mastered by my brother-in-arms, Chris Basil, a legend. Our producer and engineer is Terrence Malango, who always makes the studio feel like home. And I also want to send a shout-out to our marketing slash PR team, Josefina Francis, Hilary Schuff, and Kurt Courtney, along with Lizzie Denahan and the rest of the sales team. Corny as it may sound, I'm damn lucky to have all these people on Team Margins.